Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith, where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer in residence here at the college, and you can read what I write at alatea.org or excorde.org. Today, I want to talk about spending Christmas with the Holy Family. This uh, Christmas comes on a Saturday, which is the worst day possible for Christmas. Actually, I think every day is the worst day possible for Christmas. Every day that Christmas seems to fall, it seems to be the wrong day, which kind of defines Christmas, I think, right? Easter Sunday is always on a Sunday. Thanksgiving is always on a Thursday. But Christmas is unexpected, just like Jesus is coming in an unexpected way. But it falls on a Saturday this year, and the next day is Holy Family Sunday. So if Christmas were on a Sunday, there would be seven days in between these two days. Today, there's mere hours. And that means you're going to have to go to Mass on Saturday or on Friday night and then go again on Sunday. But Christmas is the day before Holy Family Sunday this year. And that gives us reason to talk about spending Christmas with the Holy Family, which you're literally going to do this year. So I want to go through each of the persons of the Holy Family and kind of look at Christmas from their perspective. Starting with Joseph, I was going to say, um, you know, not least of all with Joseph, but actually he is totally least of all. Joseph is the least important person at Christmas, and therefore that makes him the most like us. For Joseph, Christmas was not about him. It was about his wife, and it was about his baby. And that essentially is the role of every dad. That's also the role of every Christian. It's instructive to point out the two angelic visits uh, that preceded Christmas, Joseph's and Mary's. The Annunciation to Mary begins with the angel saying, Hail Mary, full of grace. And then the angel makes clear that she's a very special person chosen by God for a historic task in salvation history. To Joseph, he says, Joseph, son of David. So Joseph is not called forth as a great man to play a huge role in salvation history. He's called as the descendant of a great man. His life was not foreseen by prophecy. He's not a forerunner like John the Baptist and new Elijah. He's just a random guy who has to deal with the fact that Jesus and Mary are now going to be in his life. So each of our stories is exactly like Joseph's. None of our stories matter in and of themselves. Uh, Only Jesus Christ's story matters. Now, our lives matter insofar as they interact with his, and they matter a great deal, as we shall see, but our names are not going to appear in history We're not going to be named as significant players in the history of the Catholic Church in America. We are not going to have books written about us or people devoting themselves to us. If we do our jobs well, we're going to be more like George Bailey than George Washington. We are going to be people who make a huge impact that nobody ever notices. But Joseph was nonetheless a great man precisely by not putting himself first. In fact, before the angel appeared, we read in the book of Matthew, in this line that always comes up around Christmas, Joseph, her husband, since he was a righteous man, yet unwilling to expose her to shame, decided to divorce her quietly. So this is Joseph's big moment. 
and he uses it to decide to divorce the Blessed Virgin Mary when she's with child. So at first that sounds like, oh my gosh, seriously, Joe, what's going on? Why did you do that? But then if you think about it, Joseph had been betrothed. He was truly married. Mary was not an unwed mother. She was had not moved into the final stage of her marriage yet. But he had not slept with her. He had not taken her into his home. So how could she be pregnant? Well, looking at it from St. Joseph's point of view, if he thought she had done wrong, then he should expose her to shame. He should say she has done wrong because the law demands that somebody who did wrong be exposed to shame. But he was unwilling to expose her to shame, which makes us realize, okay, no, he didn't think that she did wrong. Well, he knew he didn't do wrong. So what did he decide to do? He decided to divorce her quietly. What would that entail? Now, this is a reading of this whole thing that I got from Mother Teresa in a book we have. So she made this comment once, and I really like it. He decided to slip away quietly, divorce her without making a big deal about it. Then what would happen? Well, she would be found to be with child. It would become pretty obvious after a while that she was pregnant and people would see that Joseph left her without saying anything about it. And they would put two and two together and it would expose him to shame, right? This is the only way he could take her sin onto himself without lying about it. He would never say, I did this and I should suffer the consequences because that's not true. But by divorcing her quietly, unwilling to expose her to shame, that's precisely what he did do. So that's what we need to do in our subplot as we play our small part in the history of Jesus Christ, not be willing to expose others to shame, but take whatever is wrong onto ourselves and suffer in the place of others to the extent that we can. But the angel came and told Joseph not to worry. Do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, into your home. And so we learn from the gospel, Joseph took his wife into his home. This always reminds me of the passage from the crucifixion in St. John, where first he says to his mother, behold your son, indicating John. I think that's important. We sometimes hear the explanation of this gospel passage that it was all about finding somebody to take care of his mom. But it seems like he's putting his mom in charge of John to start with. But at any rate, then he says, uh, behold your mother to John. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. So we can imagine how much that changed John the evangelist's life to have Mary in his home. In fact, if you read his gospel, you realize just how much it changed his life because his gospel is totally unlike the other ones. Well, Joseph did the same thing. Joseph took Mary into his home, and that made an enormous impact on Joseph. Any man who's been married knows what a huge difference a wife in your home (laughs) makes in your life, changes everything about your life, changes the way you do absolutely everything, makes you a much better person. And that's exactly what happened with Joseph. And that's exactly what happens with us when we bring Mary into our lives. But Joseph also is given the gift of naming Jesus. She will bear a son and you are to name him Jesus, says the angel, because he will save his people from their sins. This is a huge deal. The Old Testament prophesied, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel, which raises the question, well, why didn't he name him Emmanuel? 
Uh, and there's a whole thing about that with St. Irenaeus, but I don't have it in front of me, so never mind. <laughs> Skip that part, okay? Um, but Joseph is given this huge responsibility of naming the second person of the Trinity when he becomes a human being, and that is exactly what we're meant to do in our lives as Christians as well. Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So if we're too ashamed to name Jesus, to be public about the fact that he's a part of our lives, then he will be too ashamed to name us on the final day. So that's something to learn from St. Joseph. Don't be afraid to name Jesus. Last, the sort of... uh, paradigmatic virtue of Joseph is that he obeyed. When Joseph awoke, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he kept doing as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. What did he do? Well, he took him to the temple, right? He took him to Egypt to escape the uh, massacre of the innocents. Then when he was called out of Egypt, he brought him back to Nazareth and, you know, basically lived the life of a dad with Jesus bringing him to the temple later on in life. But in other words, what Joseph did were very mundane things. So these are the kinds of tasks that we ordinary folk need to do every Christmas, but also throughout the year. So to spend Christmas with the Holy Family, first of all, with Joseph, means to be obedient, to name Jesus, welcome Mary into your life, and be willing to be a subplot. Be willing to take the crosses of others onto yourself. But about taking Mary into your home, what does that mean for us today? I have always been really wary of Marian consecration. I've always loved Mary, never have a problem praying to Mary. This whole thing about consecrating yourself to Mary always seemed weird to me. They talk about being a slave to Mary I didn't, Mary doesn't strike me as the kind of person who wants slaves. I didn't understand it. So I, I, the first time I read the book, 33 Days to Morning Glory, that um, you're supposed to consecrate yourself at the end of it, I didn't consecrate myself. I'm like, uh, okay, I'm not going to do this. But eventually I discovered that this is actually a great thing to do, and I understood precisely what they mean, I think precisely, Anyway, I understood better what they mean. And really, it all started happening when I was contemplating Christmas. And let me talk about a specific instance of that. Uh, We did a video here at Benedictine College about the nativity where we had a real baby, a real uh, priest playing Joseph, a real um, sister, religious sister was playing Mary. And uh, it taught me a lot about kind of what it means to entrust yourself to Mary. So we noticed that we had to separate the animals from the manger in the video because otherwise the animals would threaten the baby Jesus. They would either try to go for the hay or they would knock over the thing. Uh, So we discovered it's very, very difficult to accommodate a baby in a barn. And it drove home to me just how risky the whole incarnation was. God didn't just need Mary and Joseph to say yes once at the beginning of his life as a baby. God needed Joseph and Mary to say yes over and over again, minute by minute, day by day, doing all of these things to kind of keep Jesus safe. Then when our shepherds gathered around the manger, 
they naturally kept looking at the face of Jesus, then they would look up at the face of Mary and back. And it made me realize that we're talking about a unit here when we're talking about the baby Jesus. There is no baby Jesus apart from Mary. You can't conceive of the two separately, no pun intended. You have to be able to see them as a unit. And the more we filmed this thing, the more I realized one figure more than any other dominated the nativity scene. So we were gathered around this little makeshift manger in a barn out here in Kansas. We had uh, shepherds, we had a Joseph, but everybody stared at Mary the whole time. Uh, This woman who was playing Mary for us, this religious sister, uh, is not a mom, but she had a very motherly presence about her and Uh, It seemed that when the baby started to fuss a little bit and she could easily and quickly put the baby back to sleep. And everyone was just kind of staring at awe at this woman who was not the Blessed Virgin Mary and at this child below her that was not Jesus Christ. And it made me realize that this sort of womanly presence that Mary has uh, is the same thing she brought throughout her whole life, uh, even to the upper room at Pentecost. So all of this together uh, made me realize that in order to commit yourself to Jesus Christ, you have to have a place for Mary in your life. So, you know, the thing which made me not want to consecrate myself to Mary is I figured, all right, baptism is already consecration to Jesus Christ. The Eucharist is where I receive him body, blood, soul, and divinity. Why do I need to add any kind of relationship with Mary to all of that? What this kind of Christmas experience helped me realize is that it's not adding something to that. It's completing the picture. Mary is in the picture when you're talking about Jesus Christ. And going back to my objection about Mary not wanting to be a slaveholder, well, there's another way to think about this. As I watched Mary there holding the baby Jesus by the manger in the barn, It was clear that she was doing with him as she wished. Does that mean that Jesus was her slave, was controlled by her? No, it means that she was a mother to Jesus. Does that mean that she was greater than him? No, Uh, neither the sister was greater than the baby, nor is Mary greater than Jesus Christ. In fact, she's far inferior to Jesus Christ. But it does mean that as the mother of Jesus Christ, he had a loving relationship with her where he would do as she wishes. And we saw that throughout his life, for instance, at the wedding feast at Cana. And when we're with our mother, we do as she wishes, not because we're her slave, although it could look from the outside like we're her slave. But no, slavery is impossible with love. We do it out of love because we're her son. Another analogy would be to a military leader, a king or a queen in ancient days, where the king says to do X, so I do X. Is that because I'm a slave? No, it's because I'm a soldier in this uh, great project that the leader is leading us in. Well, Mary is our queen, right? She appears crowned in glory in Revelation 12. And in this great project where she's leading this battle against Satan, we do what she says, not because we're her slaves, but because we are her faithful soldiers in the church here on earth. 
And that brings us to the last person in this scene and clearly the most important person, the ultimate meaning for the whole uh, Christmas celebration, for all of our own Christmas celebrations, and that's Jesus Christ. You know how the song um, Silver Bells talks about how strings of streetlights, even stoplights, blink a bright red and green, and then that rhymes with this is Santa's big scene? Well, of course, it's not Santa's big scene at all. It's Jesus's big scene, and it's meant to be a very deep recommitment that we make to Jesus Christ at Christmas. So at Christmas, we're not just celebrating the fact that Jesus came to save us. In order for Jesus to save you, you have to commit to being saved. So when someone throws you a life raft, you actually have to climb onto the life raft. It doesn't work automatically. So Jesus is a life raft from our life of meaninglessness, purposelessness, sin, and uh, this kind of um, being lost in the crowd sensation that we all have. This is why our subplot, which seems so meaningless in one respect, becomes super important because we are adopted in Jesus Christ to be sons and daughters of God himself. And I recently looked up kind of what you have to do to prepare for adoption of a child, because I thought, okay, if I'm going to take God's adoption of me at Christmas seriously, I need to understand what adoption entails. If I'm literally adopted and the church teaches us that we really are adopted, it's over and over in St. Paul, it's there in the catechism. I wanted to see, well, okay, what does this mean like practically? So I found a couple of best practices for adopting children. And so if you'll roll with me on this a little bit, um, I'll try to apply this to Christmas and to Jesus Christ. So the experts say you should spend time with your child before he or she is adopted, if possible, at least Zoom or Skype. Visiting a child is the best way to do this, but you can at least Zoom or Skype with your child. Well, this is what salvation history was. This is God doing what his best practices, which is reaching out to the people he wants to adopt by Zooming and Skyping with them through various signs of um, the prophecies and the, the, all the event, great events of salvation history, preparing us to understand what he's like, who he is, what our new life is going to be like. Another best practice is if your child is being adopted from another country, learn key phrases in a child's language. So often what will happen is somebody will adopt a child from Romania or from China, and you need to be able to say some things so that the poor child isn't just totally lost and hear some friendly words in, in a tongue that they understand. They say that you need to kind of learn requests like, are you hungry? You need to learn how to say reassuring things like, I will take care of you. You need to learn some basic discipline. You need to learn to say, stop, please, in the child's language. Well, this is exactly what Jesus did for us. He speaks to the desires of our heart, saying, are you hungry? In salvation history, he says, I will take care of you. In his commandments, the Ten Commandments, he says, stop, please. His son's life, by sending Jesus Christ to us, prepares us for adoption. Because he says, look, this is how you do this. Watch me. And on the cross, with his arms wide open, he says, I love you. Another thing you have to do is make arrangements to teach your child your language. Well, this is scripture, right? This is what God did for us through scripture. Teaches us to think in a totally different way. 
If you've uh, had the experience that I had this year of going through the Bible in a Year podcast, you realize just how different the Bible's way of viewing the world is from our kind of uh, accustomed way of thinking of the world. And so God has sent us scriptures and the Psalms so that we can kind of retrain our brain and be ready to be adopted. Next, the uh, best practice is to ask the child for drawings and to put them on the refrigerator for all to see when the child comes. Well, this is exactly what God does for us by having us play our small role in salvation history. He takes the small efforts that we make, the little good deeds that we do, the prayer routine that we're somehow able to manage, and he makes a huge deal out of them and acts like we've done something wonderful, Uh, so much so that sometimes it goes to our head, but he wants us to feel like we're part of what he's doing. So he puts our pictures on the refrigerator of heaven. So I love this one because as a parent, you've seen so many times when your child says, hey, watch me, and they're doing something that doesn't take all that much talent. They're swinging high, perhaps. But something about being watched while doing this thing makes them feel loved and seen and adored. Well, this is kind of what God does with us. We, we say, watch me, and he gets all excited that we're receiving communion, that we're doing some small good deed, that we're avoiding some small temptation. He is as congratulatory to us as if he put our picture on his refrigerator. Another best practice for adopting a child is to send care packages to the child, pictures of the home they will be joining, a photo book, perhaps a stuffed animal, drawings from siblings. God does this all the time. We call them sacramentals, medals and little holy cards with pictures of saints and you know pictures of angels. This is all kind of trying to familiarize us with what heaven will be like. And if you're blessed with a beautiful church in the style that the liturgy guys here at Ex Corde uh, talk about, then that itself is a care package sent from heaven to prepare you to kind of understand what it's going to be like in your new home. The last best practice that they tell you if you're adopting a child is, if possible and desirable, have an entrustment ceremony where you transfer the child to their new home. So they are suggesting that there's some kind of ritualistic way you can welcome the child into your new home. And they give various ways of doing this that that are not elaborate, but are just kind of um, out of the ordinary enough to make the child feel like something special has happened. Well, the church, of course, does this all the time. Our baptism ceremony is just such a ceremony. Every mass is just such a ceremony as we line up and go up to the front of the communion line and commit ourselves to him over and over again by receiving him in communion. So we're going to talk more about New Year's resolutions shortly here, but maybe a New Year's resolution could be to get to know this new family you're adopted into better, to get to know Joseph and Mary better, and to get to know the life of Christ more. You know, Christmas is a great story, the shepherds and the angel and Herod and the wise men and all that. But there's a whole gospel full of amazing stories that are just as charming and just as moving as what you hear at Christmas. So maybe a good New Year's resolution is to kind of acclimate yourself to this new family that you're in by learning all about the way they think, the way they act, and the way they love. 
Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is the Catholic Living Podcast produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.